You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-hosts today, Jen Wilkin and JT English, and we're joined by our colleague, Elizabeth Woodson, who we are so excited to have on the team. Elizabeth has been an incredible addition to the TVCI team. We're so grateful for her. She's helping with curriculum and classes and training program, That, and we also just really like hanging out with her. So she was fun to have jump in today. So um, on today's episode, we're going to be answering questions submitted by listeners of this podcast. Uh, some of you submitted questions, uh, and they're hard questions. They're really tough. Tough, really tough questions, and we did our best to try to answer some of them in really quick sound bites. But I would imagine that some of the answers, most of the answers, will be unsatisfying to you. And if that's the case, there are other resources that we'd love to point you to. We try to make some resource recommendations throughout the podcast. Uh, we we're so glad that not only some of you are listening, but you're willing to engage by asking great questions. And so, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy the discussion today. Hey, did you guys have a good weekend? Yeah. Kyle, what'd you do? I, um, well, I ran a Spartan race. Okay. I was really proud of myself. What else did you do? I did a wedding. What happened at the wedding? It did not go well. <laughs> 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 uh, to the lovely couple whose wedding I did and messed up on oh, multiple fronts this oh, past wow. weekend. Bless you. May the peace of the Lord be with your marriage. Um, what no, do you they were like so the gracious. Part of the wedding. Uh, oh, oh, I Can should, you nail it down? To I'm going to have or? to quit telling you and Jen stories because <laughs> they always come back up. Um, what happened? Though? Uh, yeah, thank you, Elizabeth. Um, okay, so I did a wedding and I was I was up there and about the time that they were going to move towards the Lord's Supper, with the Lord's Supper table was right behind me. So I'm standing in front of the bride and groom, and then the Lord's Supper table is right behind me, and to the left and the right of that table was a pretty large podium with like a flower arrangement. Oh. And whenever I step to the side to let them get to the table, I knock the podium over oh. along with all of the flowers on top of it, and it crashed to the floor. And Did you I acknowledge it? I didn't even look back. I, just, I acted like nothing had happened. I just did that, and I immediately started sweating profusely. Uh, and I was so embarrassed and mortified. And I just afterwards, I like after they got done with the Lord's Supper, they they went back. You know what? Honestly, hats off to them. They kept their composure the whole time. Nobody gave a bill for those flowers I, for sure. Yeah. No, I really I should pay them for doing their wedding. But yeah. um, no, it did not. It was not my best moment. Okay. Uh, it was one of the most embarrassing moments of my life. Uh, what about your oh, weekend, I, I, JT? <laughs> I doubt that was one of the most embarrassing moments it, of your life. I've was, heard some of your other stories. Yeah, we're not going to go any further than that. Um, listen, hey, we're so glad that all of you got to hear that story. Um, today's Today is going, that, that story, is, it's good that we let off the way because this podcast is going to be wheels off. Um, this is our Q&A episode. So we had listeners submit questions. Uh, and so I'm joined, as you heard in the intro today, by JT, by Jen, and then all also, Elizabeth Woodson. Hey, y'all. Elizabeth's in here. So Elizabeth joined our team, how many months ago now? Like almost two and a half months ago. Mm-hmm. Almost two and a half months. Yeah. And she's already on the podcast. Mm-hmm. She's an MVP all-star. We'll see how long it lasts. Yeah. yeah. 
this could be your last day. <laughs> Depending on how you answer something. No, I'm just kidding. Would that be terrible that if we were like, terrible. if it was like a voice situation where like we were like, answer a question, and then if we didn't like your answer, you're like, sorry, you're right nope. out. Yeah. Um, no, that will not be the case. But we do have some really big questions. We just last time that we did this, we regretted doing listener submitted questions, not because you guys ask bad questions. You just ask really, really hard questions. All the questions you would expect people would submit are the ones that they've submitted. And so we're going to get to get through, we might get through one of these, we might get through 10 of these, who knows how many questions we'll actually get through, but we're going to jump into them. And I'm really excited and I'm really grateful that you guys took time to post questions on there. Uh, This is just a good opportunity for us to say thanks for listening. We're so glad that you uh, have been a subscriber and a listener to Knowing Faith. We're really excited uh, about uh, the podcast and just kind of the direction it's been on. We really think we're doing something um, that's sweet for our listeners and it's a good resource for our people. And so we're excited that you've jumped in and that you've joined and that you're listening. And so we have some questions here. And so we're going to just embark on them immediately. Um, And so here's the first question. Are Israel and the church the same in the new covenant? How should we read passages about Israel in 2018? Do they relate to current events in the state of Israel? This is a question about the relationship between Israel and the church and how we're to understand that relationship now. So that's a very uncontested question. Nobody has any opinions about <laughs> no this. No one feels strongly about <laughs> so that. I'm just, I just want to open up the floor. Any thoughts about Israel and the church? Uh, you want me to go first? Of course. This? Yeah, I was kind of All looking right. at you like, yeah, Jen, lead <laughs> okay. the way. Well, um, my understanding has been that, or my reading, I would say, of of the Bible is that uh, Israel in the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament are in some sense the same uh, in that there was ethnic Israel. That's those who were, you know, born into that line, but not all of ethnic Israel was necessarily saved by grace through faith, although we know certainly that some were. Um, And then there is spiritual Israel, which would be those who were saved by grace through faith alone and were also Jewish. So along that line then, in the New Testament, the church, along with anyone of all time who has been saved by grace through faith, would comprise true Israel. Yeah. What do you think? No, I mean, I think that's <clears throat> that's typically the way I answer that question. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of differing opinions out there. Um, and so there are some that see Israel and the church as to... Mutually exclusive. Mutually exclusive things. So, what, what's that called? So like a Venn diagram has helped me with this a lot. Mm-hmm. If you have these two circles and one is spiritual Israel and one is uh, ethnic Israel, there would be overlap between those two circles. There would be um, space where there are ethnic Jews who in the Old Testament who were people of faith mm-hmm. saved by grace through faith and then yep. there would be those who weren't and and th- so there's overlap between those two but that spiritual Israel would be a combination of saved um, Israelites and the church yeah mm-hmm. yeah go ahead jump in yeah so uh, Elizabeth and I share background in education being educated at Dallas Theological yeah. Seminary for our master's degrees and uh, so uh, this is a really challenging question, but I, I'm going to play devil's advocate for a minute. And if I'm candid, just in terms of my own personal kind of theological convictions here, uh, I kind of fall, I feel like somewhere in the middle. If we're talking about two uh, different positions, though there's more than two, and there's mm-hmm. really a lot of kind of grayness between the two. We're talking about dispensationalism and covenantalism. There's been right. some really helpful books written over the past few years that have tried to kind of blend those two. So you have like progressive dispensationalism, which is a wonderful book by Daryl Bach and Craig Blazing, or 
Progressive Covenantalism, which is a book called uh, the book is called Kingdom Through Covenant by Steve Wellam, Peter Gentry. If you're interested in these questions, these are the kind of resources that you need to. Yeah. But whenever I'm in this conversation, whether we're talking about this in the training program or whether it was in, yeah. in my studies, it's very rare to have the other position represented fairly, mm-hmm. right? So Covenantalists typically do not re- represent dispensationalists fairly, and in, in, in my experience, vice versa, also. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like the covenantal position is is in the room right now. So. As a dispensational, as a dispensationally trained student, mm-hmm. I would want to ask you the question. So, in Genesis twelve, a promise is made to Abraham and to his descendants. Yeah, is that a promise that's for Abraham and his descendants? And who are those descendants? And is that the church? Yeah. <clears throat> so, I mean, typically, you know, my help because people are probably like driving. They probably mm-hmm. don't know what the promise in Genesis twelve. Let me just read yeah, it real read quick. It. This is Genesis twelve one through three. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think typically when we're looking at this, when we teach this in the training program, we talk about the, this is promises of dwelling dominion and dynasty. Mm -hmm. That God is going to dwell with his people, that he is going to give them dominion over a land, Mm -hmm. uh, and that they're going to be his royal dynasty. They're going to be his royal representatives and he's going to exercise his rule and reign through them. That's right. On on earth. And so when we're thinking about these promises and these covenant the covenant that God is making with Abraham, yet typically a dispensationalist approach will treat this as, okay, these are, at least there are unique dimension to these promises for the actual ethnic, the biological descendants of Abraham. Yeah, and a dispensationalist wants to concern themselves with God's promises being real and true and not coming back null and void and also not being bait and switches that right. this promise was made to one group of people but actually now applies to a different group of people. Right. And so uh, covenantal, uh, the covenantalist position or covenant theology, typic, covenant theologians typically take this to be a little bit more all-encompassing. So they treat Abraham as a covenant head right. or a federal representative of an entirely new people group. Now keep in mind, Abraham, when God forms Israel, Israel doesn't exist. Right. It's a machination. God makes Israel. Like they don't exist. Abraham is from Ur. He's a pagan, right? God calls him out of Ur and sends him into a land. Uh, And so in that process, God constitutes a new people. So there's not a position that says, well, Israel existed prior to Abraham. Israel existed at the behest of the mission of God in the world. And so if the question is, well, are there unique fulfillment aspects to the promises that are given to Abraham that pertain to ethnic Israel? Then I think the answer to that is yes. That's just part of the tension of the Bible. But are there things that have yet to be fulfilled for the people of Israel? My answer to that is no that he does give them a land. Many of the promises that are, that are given to Abraham appear to be true by 2 Samuel 7, mm-hmm. right? So there is a fulfillment. It's just a partial fulfillment. This is what the writer of Hebrews, I think, is talking about as he extrapolates from those covenants and says, no, 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 they didn't get everything that was really promised because they weren't the promised people. Yeah, but I think that's right. But at the same time, you have to recognize, I think the New Testament, one of the primary tensions in the New Testament is the relationship between Jews and Gentiles in the church, but also Jews that were outside of the church well, uh, and, and, and kind of how the Old Testament scripture is being now appropriated by an entirely new faith. Well, yeah, but, and I, that's why I think Paul is so helpful in this conversation because Paul is the one that's threading Like that, he always is. Where, we're well, just, just going to bring Paul, well, St. Paul to bear on this conversation. Well, but, but Paul, that's why the letter to Romans is so significant for us in understanding this tension because Paul, probably more so than any of the other um, 
any other apostolic voice in the New Testament is having to thread this needle on mission of the Gentiles is how really are they now a part of what's happening. That's why in Genesis 9 he says, he looks at us, not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. Yep. So Paul is leaning into what is present in the prophets because the it's not like Paul is charting new waters here. He's not stating something new. The prophets were always distinguishing between a remnant that, that lived within the people of Israel and the larger grouping of Israel itself. So they were always making an internal distinction that I think Jesus is acknowledging in the wheat and the tares, for example. And I think that Paul is saying explicitly in Romans 9. And so I feel like that is where we begin to see Paul in Romans 9 and then in Galatians chapter 3, Three. Yeah, um, where Paul begins to distinguish between um, two different ways of viewing Israel, two different angles on Israel. Um, Elizabeth, from your time at DTS, is this an issue that you felt like you landed somewhere and you feel really passionate and you're angry that we haven't stated <laughs> your position yet? No, I think it's an, it's just an interesting question because definitely at DTS growing up, even in how I grew up um, theologically and dispensational, um, have heard it talked a lot about with Israel and the church. Um, not necessarily myself, feel like I've landed somewhere, I think um, between covenant and dispensational and just kind of understanding, especially um, how do we see Israel today, mm -hmm. um, especially with a lot of things that are going on in people's um, interest in end times and interest in our, our current events that are happening really pointing towards what we see in scripture and should we take them literally or should we um, um, yeah how do we approach our understanding of that and so I think that's kind of a place that I've rested in is how do I help people wrestle with what they see happening mm -hmm. right now um, based upon the two different main camps that sometimes people find themselves in yeah because this is an issue that this is one of those issues where there are tremendous socio-political mm -hmm. implications uh, given where you land theologically. Undoubtedly, right? yeah. They yeah. can be appropriated by, by politicians and yep. parties to their ends. And right. Their I mean, the relocation of the um, embassy, embassy yeah. to Jerusalem. Hey, can an I, incredible can I, thing. I want to ask you a question, though. So I want to ask you a question. Okay, you can ask me next. You're, you always get to ask the question. Okay. This is my question. <laughs> so you, just, you just cited St. Paul. You wanted to bring Paul to bear on this conversation. I want to bring all of God's word to bear on every conversation. <laughs> In Romans 9, but, you, but Romans 11... Uh, Paul has just spent some time talking about the relationship between Jews and Gentiles. In Romans 11, he says this, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am, am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And then goes, I'll go down to verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means, rather though through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. <laughs> that seems to be that traditionally this is a passage that dispensationalists uh -huh. would cite to say that it seems in Paul's mind there still are two groups of people here. Well, there are two ethnic groups of people here. And I think that whenever Paul's retelling the story but of if, Israel, if that's true, then and again, I'm trying to play devil's advocate yeah, here. Sure. I think you and I agree. I'm just mm -hmm. trying to help people in this conversation. But in verse one, it says, has God rejected his people? And if you're claiming this is an ethnic people, mm -hmm. that Paul is referencing ethnic people, then he's referencing ethnic Israel. God has not rejected them. Yeah, I mean, I would say that... <clears throat> if, if that's your exegetical argument, right, but, you have to apply ethnic Israel to both passages. No, for sure. And I think this is a point well made. I think that the Paul's point in Romans 11 is not that God has rejected Israel, but that Israel has rejected God. And because of that rejection, something has now been made available to the Gentiles. And now, in the scheme of God's sovereignty, we in his purposes and plans and his good providence and salvation, we go, well, it was part of God's mission that Israel would reject and that this light to the nations would be opened up. It was part of God's initial plan with Abraham 
that this people would be a light to the nations. They just did not be, they were not a light to the nations in the way that God intended them to be, right? God intended them to be a light to the nations, that they would follow after Yahweh, they would love him, they would trust him, they would follow his ways, and they'd be a light to the nations. But it ends up becoming that the great light that comes to the Gentiles is as a result of Israel's failure. Absolutely. Not I'm, so, I'm so glad you're bringing that up because it seems like Paul says that too, where he says, he says this later in verse, or chapter 11. How you doing, Elizabeth? Yeah, yeah, somebody, you know, hey, listen, yeah, we're about to, yeah. Jay, here we go. Yeah, JT and I are about to go toe-to-toe over here. Low rumble. I'm looking at we, the other questions the and I'm like, we, I think we agree. I think we agree on this. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to demonstrate the tension that exists, at yeah. least the tension that exists in my heart and mind as I try to Oh, sort for this sure. Out. I feel the same thing. Okay. Chapter 11, verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, Kyle. Kyle's actually in the text. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. <laughs> Who's tampering with the word? Let me sharpen my sword. <laughs> Lest you be wise in your own sight. I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. I think all of true Israel will be saved. <laughs> okay. Verse 29. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Yeah, no problem there. Yeah. I, I, I have well, no problem well, there. I, I understand you don't have a problem there, but if you don't acknowledge the tension that exists, I think you're not acknowledging what it actually is in the text. No, I'm willing to acknowledge that there's tension there. I just, you know, feel like the tension is not significant enough to pull me toward dispensationalism. I don't yeah, I mean, I'm not I, trying I to do yeah. I'm not trying to do an injustice to that position. I grew up with that position. I feel like I've spent a lot of time mm-hmm. in that position. And, um, but I, I just feel like, you know, once I got to covenant theology, I was like, wow, this, this fits from start to finish for me in a way that. But you can't be fully a covenantal theologian because you're not Presbyterian. Yeah. Yeah. But you yeah. have to. Do you if, know if, that I'm not Presbyterian? If, if, <laughs> oh, that's a question we're going to yeah, get into a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so none of us, we, all, all of us work at a Baptist church. Yep. We, we do. At, yeah. Spoiler so, alert. So we're not, so we're not, we're not we're, yeah, so, thank you, Lord. Mm. So we're not Presbyterians, we're not covenantal right. theologians. We all acknowledge some level of discontinuity. And th- this is really where, because uh, listen, spoiler alert to the listener, we're not going to answer this question. <laughs> no, I really feel like my position is, yeah, I, I get that there's a lot, there's a not perfect clarity mm-hmm. here, but I do feel more more comfortable leaning covenantal than dispensational. And a lot of that has to do with our approach to the overall narrative. Yeah. And so uh, I feel like a lot of people find great comfort in covenantal theology because it unites some big picture realities. You mean like the Old Testament and the New Testament? Mm -hmm. Right. Whereas dispensationalists typically, uh, and having sat in those classes and learned from those professors, uh, typically they do get more into the minutiae of the text. I always felt like uh, the dispensationalist tradition is a history before it's a theology, and covenantalists are generally theologians before they're historians. That's well said. Um, and so well said. it kind of feels like, do you disagree? No, I think that's right, but I think you maybe even to take it a step further, dispensationalists have traditionally, and this is unfair, again, mm-hmm. I'm not trying to be unfair to both sides, have tried to be a, a, a group of scholars, people, theologians, pastors, whatever, who are literalists. I realize covenantal no, theologians no, no, are sure. literalists. No, so I understand not, saying. Okay. But like they're trying to, what does this text mean in its context, yes. in a historical grammatical method? Yeah, no, absolutely. That's true, because there are some tensions. Like when I look at the overall scheme of the story, I feel like, man, I really, the covenantal position seems to strike a deeper chord with me. Mm-hmm. When I get into the details, there are some places where you're like, ah, oh, that's hard to square. Yeah. 
for sure. So. Well, I think we all agree, mm-hmm. but we've had this conversation before just at lunch, and, and I think it's important for us to acknowledge the tension. That's good. Because and just what, for our listeners, you can know that that lunch was every bit as stressful as the yeah. first 14 minutes of the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> <laughs> what, 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 this conversation, perhaps more than any other, has created in me a desire to be charitable with people yeah. with yeah. other positions, oh, because yeah. this is mm-hmm. really, really tough. It is. And for some reason, this this one in particular, these two kind of schools of thought cannot reach common ground. And but are it's very, also, I mean, we would, this is not a first order issue. Right? No, I mean, is it? It, it has it. It, it, it has implications. It no. but, but I wouldn't say it's a first order issue. But it is one of those things that definitely changes the way that you do. It is the it is theological method and hermeneutics. It's mm-hmm. not just a question about Israel and the church. It's yeah. a, it's a question of how you, how do you the approach the yeah. Bible. That's a yeah. big deal. That's true. Yeah. Well. Now that you're now that we sufficiently unsatisfied. Um, can, can I just say those two references one more time for yep. people who maybe are more interested? Steve Wellam, Peter Gentry wrote a book called Kingdom Through Covenant. There is a short version by that one and read that one. It's very, very good. It would be on the progressive covenantalist side. If you want to read a progressive dispensationalist book, Craig Blazing and Daryl Bach have a book called Progressive Dispensationalism. That'll give you kind of two sides of the, of the argument. That's good. Elizabeth and Jen, I'd love you guys to speak to this. Why does God seem to be silent in the Old Testament regarding the treatment of women, multiple wives, treating women like property? seems like there's harsh punishment for other things, but why isn't God constantly challenging and calling that out in the Old Testament? Have you all had to grapple with that? You're prepping to teach First and Second Samuel next year. <laughs> and Every time we're in the Old Testament. Right. Well, so, and yeah. sometimes in the New Testament, so what do you, too. Yeah. So what do you do? Well, uh, you know, it has to do with understanding genre a little bit. And this is one of the things we've actually been kicking around the idea of doing a whole podcast on genre. We'll do it. Just to kind of hit the high points. But historical narrative in the Old Testament, uh, we come to it with the wrong set of assumptions. Hmm. Like we're looking for the narrative the narrator to yeah. tell us what to think about things. Uh, yet, if we had a better understanding of the cultural context or even just the way that these stories are written, we would understand that just as you don't turn on the evening news and expect, um, well, Lester Holt is my guy, so I'll just use him, <laughs> expect Lester to tell you that there was a massive earthquake somewhere and go, and it was the most terrible thing in the world because you would understand without him editorializing that it was a terrible thing, that that's often the way that these Old Testament narratives are written. Uh, we just don't know how to hear the voice of the narrator in the way that it is being written, that it's implied that things are not good or that there was something earlier in the text. So like, for example, the issue of polygamy always comes up, you know, people just kind of are like, well, uh, when Jacob married Rachel and Leah, I guess that was cool because the narrator didn't say anything to the to <laughs> right. the contrary. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, but we already had earlier in Genesis the declaration that marriage was between one man and one woman, right? And so you you, you can imply things from things that were earlier in the text. That's so, really helpful. And you know, here's another thing too. Um, I was researching for a, a talk I just gave. Uh, that had to do with bond servants um, and the treatment of bond servants. And there are all of these safety precautions in place, like in the uh, Book of the Covenant in Exodus 21 and then also in Deuteronomy for mistreatment of servants Mm -hmm. and uh, things like, hey, if you knock out your servant's tooth or their eye, so in other words, if they show physical signs of abuse, then they go free. Mm. So if a servant, if that's Mm. the law for a servant, then we would imply that for a wife to be mistreated... There would certainly be the same, if not a greater, penalty in place for mistreatment of someone because although we don't like this in our society, these those social stratifications that that, that existed, 
um, a servant would have been below a, a family member in terms of what you would expect for protection from the law in many cases. And so it just seems to me that we have a hard time getting into their skin and thinking yeah. it, because, you know, if you line up the ancient Near Eastern law codes with the law codes of Israel, Israel's law codes are more expansive. Yeah. They're more gracious. They're more um, protective. And But we can't see that because we're not familiar with the context they're in. That's good. Yeah. I mean, I think also to, to not see necessarily the people that we have in Scripture representative of the full way in which God wants to treat humanity. You know, mm-hmm. you have a story of a people who don't get it. Like they, they are sinful and they're not after the heart of God and, and God's attempt to, to pursue them and bring them back to himself. And so to me, when I look at women in the Old Testament, I also look in the ways in which God highlights women that in a culture might have been unseen. So mm-hmm. you have people like Rahab and Ruth um, and women whose stories were hard. Um, and I think especially as you bring in um, the cultural context of what some of these women had to do, I think when you think about some of the laws where you had to, the idea you had to marry your rapist, mm-hmm. um, but the reality of what that well, woman was. You went was, there. Right. <laughs> I did. I kind of just jumped into that. <laughs> Both feet. Um, but what the life was like for the woman who had been raped, if that mm-hmm. was not going to be something that was for her. Um, and in honor and shame culture, whether it was death or whether if they weren't married, then what was going to be their livelihood? Yeah. And so I think, like Jen says, jumping into some of those cultural practices that are not reality for us, but were reality for them in that, in that culture. Um, but also looking at the ways that God highlights women in the Old Testament. And I think he's trying to push forward to to bring women to the forefront in a way they might not have been before. Yeah. And that kind of being the guide for this is how our God loves women. Um, and there, there might have been a culture that might not have been doing it the way he exactly wanted them to. We live in a possession and money obsessed culture. But what does the Bible say about generosity? In his new book, A Short Guide to Gospel Generosity, author Nathan Harris shows us that the answer to our obsession with possessions is turning to the gospel, because only in the gospel can we find the type of life transformation that enables us to turn our focus from ourselves and back to others, to give generously, and to follow in the way of Christ. To learn more about the book, visit GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. That's GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. What bridge is God calling you to cross that the gospel might go forth among the nations? Women like Lilius Trotter, Harriet Newell, and Sarah Hall Boardman Judson have indeed crossed their own bridges to get to the lost. Discover the stories of 10 inspiring female missionaries who changed the world for Christ. 10 Women Who Changed the World is seminary president Daniel Aiken's powerful tribute to these women who fulfilled the Great Commission. May we all follow in their footsteps. 10 Women Who Changed the World is available wherever books are sold. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. And I think just to jump in, um, God does punish wickedness. Mm -hmm. God will not acquit the guilty. And just because we don't always see the punishment, we actually see far less punishment in the Bible than you think we might, Mm -hmm. given Mm -hmm. what we know to be true about God. But that does not mean that there is not punishment for sin. Uh, I think it should be clearly stated that our God is holy and perfect and sits enthroned and that for any ancient Israelite 
who did not follow and trust Yahweh and who punished women or who brutalized women, that individual will be judged by a holy and righteous God. And we may not get all of that in the Old Testament narrative, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't happen, right? It doesn't mean that it won't happen. Um, and so I think that when we look at that, we remember what um, what the New Testament says about God's patience and forbearance, mm-hmm. that he, he, he bore with them for a long time. Yeah. So... Um, what you were saying about the voice of the narr- narrator not always giving us the interpretation is equally important when we're thinking about God's word to realize that not everything the Bible says is how God feels about something. Right, right. Um, and so it can be really easy for us to go, well, this is what it says, so that must be how God feels about it. No, 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 no. It, sometimes, a lot of times, specifically in narrative, you're not getting that. That's right. You're not getting it. It's not only just you're not getting the interpretation of how you should feel about it. You're not getting the interpretation of this, how God feels about it. It's actually the exception to hear mm-hmm. the, the narrator interject how yeah. God feels about right. it. And and that's when you're really supposed to perk up your ears. It's like, wow, he... He, he spoke, emphasized yeah. it to the point that, you know, so you absolutely wouldn't miss it. But that's the exception rather than the rule. That's good. That's really helpful. Um, what role will the Holy Spirit have in eternity? We've actually talked about this. I don't know if you remember this, JT. Somebody asked us this in the training program, and we were like... Long <laughs> pause. Uh, <laughs> you like, pull out your phone and start we, Googling it. Because we had talked about the Holy Spirit's work, and they were like, well, a lot of that work seems like it will be done by the time that eternity shows up. And so what's your just knee-jerk when you hear that question? I have some thoughts, but I'd love to hear what you have to think. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the easy way out here. Okay. <laughs> and, but then we'll, we'll do some maybe speculative theology. Okay. He'll certainly be worshipped, honored, and praised, right? Because sometimes I think when we think of the Spirit of God, we think of, of a, and we should never, but a, a lesser being somehow. He is God. The, the Bible makes clear that he is omniscient, worthy of honor, worship, and praise. He, there is only one God, and this one God deserves all of our honor, all of our worship, all of our acclamation and praise. And so it's not like our worship and praise is somehow reserved for the Father from the, or for the Son, that we worship them as well. The Spirit will be praised, honored, and glorified by the saints forever. Um, but if you're talking about role, and that's what the question is talking about, it's, it's like, what is his activity? You think that's what the question's getting at? Like, what is he doing? Yeah, in, mm-hmm. in the new heavens and the new earth. Yeah, he'll be receiving worship. So the question is, what is he doing? And my answer to that is, I have no idea. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Because when we typically is talk, okay? well, when we talk about, no, the, it's a Q and A. Like there, you're supposed to give them an answer. Yeah. Uh, if there is one, do you? I mean, do you know? No. Yeah. Why did you answer this one? You know, I. You know, I. Um, because when we think about the work of the Spirit, we think about the work of the Spirit as uh, sanctifying work. Right. We think about so the that's going to be done. Right. Um, we think about the work of the Spirit as conviction, illumination. Um, regeneration. We, regeneration. I think that there are some aspects of the work of the Spirit that we should continue. We should assume will continue. For example, the Dwelling. Holy Spirit is the seal of our salvation. Mm-hmm. I, well, I think that is will always be the case. I think the Spirit is how we, as a body, are knit together. So it's it is the basis of our filial relation or our um, familial relationship. It's also the uh, the mysterious. Uh, uh, way in which the, the, the Lord has knit us to a son, Jesus Christ. So we experience our union to Jesus Christ by the work of the Spirit. Well, I have one too. Okay, please. I actually did have an answer for this. Um, but, oh, wow. But, 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 uh, can I just ask the question? I want, I want to hear your yeah. answer for sure, Jen. Like, that seems like, yes, those are continuing to go on. I wonder if the question's getting at something different than what he's doing now. That's a good question. Well, I've got one. Okay. It's, it's something he's doing now, but I think mm. it's something that he will do for eternity. <clears throat> Um, if the attributes of God are innumerable, 
so my my personal belief is that we will spend eternity discovering the things that are true about God that we don't yet know. And you'll never reach the end of them because he's infinite. And if the role of the Holy Spirit is also illumination, then the Holy Spirit will be illuminating us throughout eternity to the nature and character That's of God. True. I agree 100% with that. I also agree, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we will be transformed from one degree of glory to the next. So our while our sanctification process will have culminated, glorification is not best understood as a static thing that we like receive. Like the end, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's to, be rece- uh, it's to be understood as a progressive thing that continues to happen. Mm-hmm. And that the primary agent of spiritual transformation for the life of the believer in the Godhead is the Holy Spirit. I don't think we have any reason to believe that that stops when we get to the new heavens and the new earth, that the spirit will still continue to be transforming us. Mm. Now, conviction of sin, no longer, because sin will no longer be. Uh, Comfort and grief, no longer, because grieving will no longer be. But transformation, glorification, illumination uh, are uh, the means by which our salvation is sealed. uh, And we we experience unique relationships with uh, others who have been brought into union with Christ. I think all of that remains the same. Yeah, but so again, that's all true, but those are things that he's doing now. Uh, yeah, I guess when I read the question, I go, this person probably, I mean, if I were asking the question, I guess my ask would be, well, it seems like so much of the Spirit's work is transformative, but when we get to the new heavens and the earth, will we no longer need to be transformed? And okay. I go, I think we will. Yeah, that's fair. I hope you're happy. <laughs> I hope we didn't misrepresent your question. Um, uh, what brand of t- Okay. Oh, yeah, I get to ask this one. Kyle, what brand of toothpaste do you use? (laughs) I'm looking at the guy that I know answered this question through the booth because he signed it as Christopher Nolan. And we've had an ongoing dialogue about how we feel about Nolan's movies. What brand of toothpaste do I use? I use um, the sensitive one. What is the sensitive one? Sensodyne. Do you really? I do. I do. My teeth are sensitive to uh, cold and hot, so I use the sensitive. It helps. Um, What what kind of detergent do you use to get toothpaste out of your shirt? Clearly. I don't. I, uh, I I just, you know, wear keep it. On wearing <laughs> it. <laughs> just keep on wearing the shirt. Um, okay, we're going to skip any more conversation around that. Um, how can we understand God's moral will versus his sovereign will? Gosh, these questions. <laughs> this is the worst. Uh, um, okay, how can we understand God's moral will versus his sovereign will? He commands, thou shalt not kill, yet he orders the genocide of the Canaanites by the Israelites. This is like a double body blow um we get asked this question all the time in the training program all the time like every year without fail Mm -hmm. and you have a great answer for this (laughs) thanks jt knock us out (laughs) um i mean i would begin by saying how can we understand god's moral will versus sovereign will i would say i don't love the question um i understand why the question is being asked um because the question implies that there are two different wills that god has two different wills he's made one of those wills known to us and then one of them he's hiding um, or one of them is just his divine prerogative. And this is not to say that we can know or will know or do know everything that God is up to in the world. Romans 11, which we've already quoted, but later on in that chapter, oh, the depths and the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways for who knows the mind of our God and who can be his counselor. So we're not saying that we should know or could know or do know everything that God knows. That's that's not for us. But to 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 make sense of that that tension by saying, well, God has made one one will known, but there's another will that's hiding back there. That's what he's really up to. It's just, first off, it presents some pretty significant problems when we think about God's own knowledge. It presents some 
problems about God's truthfulness. Is God actually being true when he says thou shalt not kill? Or does he really mean thou shalt not kill unless I tell you you can kill, right? Or uh, that I told you to not kill, but I really am going to ask you to kill. Like, so now is God kind of playing like both sides? He, wanna, he wants to have his cake and eat it too. He wants to be morally above reproach, but he wants to ask his people to do things he would never commission them to do. Um, and so I don't know that it's helpful to distinguish between two wills uh, in terms of that God has two wills. It's okay to distinguish that we seem to see some tension. It's okay to acknowledge that from our perspective, that kind of looking up, not looking down, that it does appear that there are some places of tension, uh, places of tension where we see God command us or command his people to do things that in other places we'd be like, hmm, that's kind of, I wonder how that's all going to square. But that's a mystery that we can't then just go, well, here's a nice little rubric and that rubric can absolve the mystery it doesn't. It doesn't help. It presents greater and greater complications. Jen, you're looking at me like a skeptic. I'm, and no, I'm, I'm thinking. I'm prepared my wheels for the question I've never considered. No, I think part of it is that this example here, thou shalt not kill, he doesn't command thou shalt not kill. He, he commands thou shalt not murder. Right. And I think it's an important distinction because it indicates um, you do not choose who lives and who dies right. is what's implied mm-hmm. there. And so um, while I admit openly to having heartburn around the genocide question, and it's something I'm always having to you know, think through, and I've done some reading on it, and I still want to read more. Mm-hmm. Um, if you take that, that particular command on face value, it's not, those are not the same thing in terms of if God says this person will live or die, he has that prerogative. But right. I, as, as a person, do not have that prerogative. That's true. Yep. So that is just a, the distinction that was whirring through my head. And that's not to say that I'm like, so yay for the conquest of Canaan. Right, but, right, right. You no, know, there is a distinction there. That's good. Um, and on that, there are two resources that I would recommend for, th- for that question in particular. One would be Culture Matters at a podcast. Our sister podcast did a, a show with Josh Butler, uh, The Skeletons in God's Closet, where we talked a lot about the Canaanite conquest, mm-hmm. and it's really helpful. Mm-hmm. So Joshua Ryan Butler, Culture Matters, and then Is God a Moral Monster by Paul Copin. Mm-hmm. If, that's the, if that's a really troubling question, and it, it, it is uh, regarding the Canaanites and the Israelites in the historical books, then both of those resources are really helpful. But the moral will versus sovereign will, it's a question that I feel like has gotten a lot of airtime, that there are two wills in God. Mm-hmm. It might be better to say that from our angle, it can appear mm-hmm. that there are mm-hmm. things that... Uh, we will not know all that God knows. God has made some things explicitly clear and we are left to pray and hope that what has not been made explicitly clear will be made clear eventually. Um, But it's not helpful to take a paradigm and go, yes, God has two wills because we don't understand his sovereignty and what he's doing through his moral will. So that would be my two cents on the question would be maybe don't lean into the two wills thing. Any other thoughts there? No, I'm looking forward to these next two questions, though. Well, these are the, if, if you thought this was spicy, if you thought this was spicy up till now, just wait. I mean, so let's let's, yeah, let's fireworks. Are Elizabeth, about. are you a cessationist or a continuationist, and why? Welcome Ooh. to the team. Welcome to the team. <laughs> you know, I think if I understand um, cessationism correctly, it is that the gifts of the spirits ended with the apostles, mm-hmm. um, and so. That be- sign gifts. Sign gifts. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, I will be a continuationist. I yeah. think I lean on that side partly because of what I see in Scripture, of just the use of the gifts after um, the time of the apostles, but also what I've seen in um, 
church history and my own personal experience. And so I think I always have been in an environment where we believed in the use of the uh, sign gifts in decency and in order um, mm-hmm. and believed with them what they were outlined in scripture. And so when you talk about one of the ones I think that causes a lot of tension is prophecy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the one. <laughs> if they're not true 100% of the time, <laughs> you know, then they're not a prophet. And so I think I've seen the assigned gifts used in the body in an appropriate manner um, with that are representative of what they're supposed to be in scripture. I've also seen the abuse of them mm-hmm. and still can understand people's tension with them. But I, all of that being said, I feel like I lean um, on the continuation this yeah. side. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good. I think a lot of people in this conversation bring, bring up abuses quickly mm-hmm. because undoubtedly there's been abuses both in cessationism yeah. and continuationism. Uh, but every single theological system has its abuses. So right. I consider myself reformed and goodness is there abuses of reformed theology left around. Yep. That doesn't stop me from being reformed yeah. or from being a, uh, a Calvinist. However, so in this conversation, this is a conversation that I've I've been spending a lot of time kind of thinking about, writing about, processing with, with you guys about, again, trained at Dallas Seminary uh, and grateful for my education there and largely my experience and evangelicalism has been kind of more on the cessationist side or maybe we'll call it like conservative continuationism. <laughs> at the Village, we're a continuationist church. I'm happy to sign mm-hmm. the doctrinal statement. I'm happy to, to be here and I, because it's what I believe. It's what I believe, mm-hmm. just like Elizabeth said, Scripture teaches us. But I want to talk about some of the abuses with you guys that maybe aren't often talked about that make Mm -hmm. me nervous about some of the continuationism that I think if we could help um, maybe paint a road or a a pathway of these theological abuses, not so much practical abuses, then I would have, it would be much easier for me to kind of consider and conceive of these things. Can we do that for a second? Sure. Sure. So the thing that that bothers me most, there's two, I'll say, well, there's three things. In this conversation in my head, I'm actually not even pointing to anybody else, but like as I as I consider putting forward my own positive view of continuationism, the first is an abuse of Trinitarianism. So so often we have to be very important in Trinitarianism to never separate the work of the three persons. It's called mm-hmm. the doctrine of inseparable operations of the Spirit. And Jesus testifies this. The Spirit is not coming to do his own work or to testify about himself. The Spirit is coming to do our will. He doesn't say anything except what he hears. He yep. says in John 15 and 16, he's going to come to be my helper. He's going to come to create witnesses and those who testify about me. But so often when I in, in, uh, in the circles uh, that I've seen, sometimes the spirit almost seems to have its own will, mm-hmm. its own mind. And we can't do that because that creates tritheism. Yeah. Right? So we have to be very careful when we're talking about continuationism and specifically speaking of the work of the spirit. It is the spirit who is doing the work of the father through the son. Yeah. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, for sure. You talk about, you use language that I think is really helpful. I don't know if it's unique to you, but I've heard it, you were the first person I heard it from, was that the spirit is never self-referential. It's yes. always self-deferential. Yeah, that was really the son helpful the for me. And I think that's super helpful. Yeah, that's and right. just and that's, a simple way to capture it. And that's what we see. But so often we're talking about the spirit referring to himself right. in these miraculous works ultimately. And Paul makes this really clear in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. It's so that Christ would be honored, magnified, and glorified, and that the community would be built up. Yeah. So yeah, I think I think that's really important. And so um, the first would be a violation of Trinitarianism. Mm-hmm. The second would be a violation of Christology, and that's kind of getting at what we just talked about right now—that he refers to Christ and doesn't refer to himself. So John 15, uh, John fifteen twenty six, Jesus says, "Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me." Yep. And so we have to be very consistent in drawing the work of the Son and the work of the Spirit together. And people who maybe aren't aware of this conversation at an academic level, there are Pentecostal and charismatic theologians who are arguing positively, or they're trying to separate the work of the Son and the Spirit. 
uh, making the case that any spiritual activity is a work of the Holy Spirit, even if it's not referential to the work of the Son. Yeah. So I'm not going to, I don't want to throw out names here sure. because that, I just don't think it would be fair. We don't have enough time to do that. But, but there, it is happening. It is happening at, at evangelical schools. Yeah, historically, at a popular level, schools. it happens all the time. All the time. Um, I think another one that I'm curious. I'm curious you didn't mention this is that because we've talked about it a lot is the doctrine of revelation. Yeah, I was going to get there. Is that like, so listen, worry, and, 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 I'm a, and I'm a big C continuationist. Like yeah. I'm a. Well, I'm, we all are. We all work in the village. Right. Um, but I've got like street cred. That you, you don't. Do. Um, <laughs> that's, true, that's true in about every conversation. You and I nah, man, I'm giving you a hard time. Um, but. Yeah, so the doctrine of revelation, when somebody, um, like when one of my charismatic brothers and sisters comes up to me and is like, hey, the Lord told me. I'm like, mm. <laughs> like I know what, and, and typically, Aww. typically, uh, even with people that have, uh, that I've seen practice this really well, just uh, our language can betray a position that we don't really hold. Because if I press and I go, do you mean that the Lord has given you an inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word? Yeah. That should be they held. It should be held at the same no. authority of Scripture. They almost always right. go, yeah. "No, no, no, no." That's not what I mean. There are semantic problems there associated are. with this conversation. There are, and so we want to be sensitive, uh, and I want to be sensitive because I think Scripture gives us freedom to do this, and and I've personally benefited in my own life from it, from other people, and then also from you know, just me personally. Um, is uh, we want to be sensitive to people going. Um, I feel like the Lord has laid something on my heart or there's a prompting. Mm-hmm. So I often go, well, what do you mean when you say the Lord s- has told you something? And they, what they typically mean is that uh, it, when it's practiced well, that in searching God's word and in praying and in community with other believers, they have some sort of, you know, unique burden. They want to share something that they feel like the Lord has kind of placed, prompted yeah. on their heart. Yeah. And they, they're not saying that we think it's equal weight with scripture. They're just saying, I feel like, I, I want to share some encouragement or exhortation with mm-hmm. you is typically the flavor that it takes. Yeah. And I think that's really important that people will be listening to the prompting mm-hmm. of the spirit. They'll be walking in step with the spirit and sharing those things, but doing so in a way that doesn't equate that prompting on the level with the authoritative word of God. Would you say that it is fair to say that the term continuationist is almost as fraught with baggage as the term complementarian these days? It's interesting. I don't know. I feel I don't know. like, I guess what I'm saying is, um, to say you are a continuationist is not I, I, there's a range there oh, yeah. that, that should be acknowledged mm-hmm. I mean like because you know when I hear the cessationist argument and then I hear I mean when I look at both ends of that I can't get on board with either of them but I would probably I've referred jokingly to myself as a limping continuationist <laughs> because I come from a very yeah. uh, painful association in my you know my mm. background with the worst versions of um, of uh, Pentecostalism, mm-hmm. and so I don't run toward any of the language that other. I feel like there are two kinds of people in this conversation. There are people who have baggage around the charismatic movement, and then there are people who have no baggage around the charismatic <laughs> movement. And the way that they think about these things is dramatically different. Sure. So I'm sensitive to both of those tensions, but I feel like I carry a lot of caution, and then a lot of other people don't. And somewhere in between those two positions is probably where the best spot to land is but it's it's tough it's tough to just set aside what whatever's in your past and 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 read this uh and think about this without bias we've we've spent some time thinking about this as a church recently i'm excited matt's going to be doing a sermon series on first corinthians 12 through 14 uh 
actually will probably be done with it by the time this podcast goes out, but it'll be it'll be this summer that mm-hmm. he's doing it, so you can pay attention to that. One of the we've kind of come up with three bullet points that we want to make sure we're always pointing people to when this conversation comes up that I just want to share quickly. Sure. Uh, the first is this: we want to make sure that we're always reminded that there are many gifts, but one Lord. We should never prioritize any gift over another. All of these are God's grace to us. We're one body, many members. There's one Lord, but many gifts. And so, making sure that as we seek. Uh, gift and giftedness. We would also seek hospitality, kindness, generosity, love, mm-hmm. teaching, evangelism. Right. That that all of these things would be yeah. building up the church. Additionally, want to make sure that anytime that there's a spiritual um, gift being used, if it's creating disunity in the body, it's not a spiritual gift. Yeah. Because the work of the Holy Spirit is to create unity and to build uh, us as many members into one body. And so we want to make sure that these elements are building uh, the body of Christ into unity. And finally, this, we never want to naturalize the ordinary elements of the Christian life. Is right. what we've been talking a lot right. about. That's is that good. there's a natural part of the Christian life and then a supernatural element right. of the Christian yeah. life. <laughs> we we, 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 we want to yeah. stay away from that dichotomy. Like the Lord supernaturally uses, uses the preaching of the word. He mm-hmm. supernaturally mm-hmm. uses the administration of the ordinances like baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so w- when we talk about the sign gifts or continuationism, we want to make sure we're not like, naturalizing the world and supernaturalizing these sign gifts. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And so making sure that we marvel at all of God's graces Mm -hmm. to us, we should marvel at the Lord's work in all of these, these things, both the sign gifts and the things that we would say aren't sign gifts, but are just manifestations of his presence with us. Like, preaching yeah right yeah or the lord's supper yeah exactly it's good well we don't have time to get to all the questions i want to selfishly i'm going to make time for the last question here (laughs) oh let me guess which one Uh, you're going to (laughs) pick is the village of baptist church (laughs) and why are you a baptist for those of you who don't know the only thing that kyle loves more than brushing his teeth (laughs) is the sbc There's no doubt. About I do that. love the SBC. He loves it so so much. What's all? So, Jen, are we an SBC church? Are we a Baptist church? The village. Yes. Heck yeah! Look, Jen's pumped. She's in. She's all in. Um, why? Why, why? why are we a Baptist? Church? Why are we a Baptist church? Why are you a Baptist? Um, yeah, it's a question. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, there's some really important reasons. Okay. The Southern Baptist Convention is. Uh, it's a. It's a massive convention with lots of churches that aren't like each other in a number of ways, but we are all committed to a number of things. Uh, the first is international missions. I mean, there's just so much more that we can do as we cooperate with other mm-hmm. like-minded churches to take the gospel to the nations. And if we can cooperate with other churches and be better at that, then I think we should just be all in. Mm-hmm. There's also the North American Mission Board where we're, we have resources available to us for church planting to see lost people in our midst come to know Christ as churches are planted. Also theological education. Uh, we, mm-hmm. we, we're we very passionate about doing theological education here uh, at the Village Church in the training program and our classes and forums. I mean, this is literally the department that makes it happen. While we also realize we can't do everything that we would like to do and so we get to send right now we have 59 students at the village church enrolled at southern seminary and the reason they're enrolled there is because of the cooperative program gives them half off tuition like that's a big deal and so there's i think there's a number of reasons for us to be involved in this convention and we're happy participants awesome elizabeth are you new to the you see when you joined our staff where it was this you were joining a baptist church yeah that's a part of the SBC. That's a part of the SBC. How is that? You know, I think as um, an African-American female, it is an interesting space to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of the reasons that JT mentioned are definite reasons why I see good things happening in the SBC. have been part of Baptist churches before, True. but those churches were part of different 
conventions or conferences, so to speak, for a lot of historical reasons. And so I think being the SBC makes me have to wrestle with what it means to do do life with other believers who might have weaknesses in some areas that are really significant to me in terms of race and gender. And so it is... It's a work in process. Mm-hmm. I, I hope, will say that. I hope you're here to make us better. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. yeah. Real. You know, I'm, I'm excited about some of the recent things that's happened this past week. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just it really, what does it look like to be a community right. and to carry the burdens and the hard burdens? Mm-hmm. And so I think I'm excited for a lot of the really great things it means just to have a collective group of believers that are coming together and can pull resources and that type of stuff. But the power that that group has also to change the face of Christianity in, in America. And so it's I'm interested to see what will happen, but I'm excited to be here because the SBC is doing good things. It's just it's an interesting place to be as a person of color. Yeah. We were at a lunch at the end of the SBC, and I thought uh, Dr. Mueller, the president at Southern Seminary, I thought he made a really good point. Whether you are really excited about the things that are going on in the SBC or absolutely terrified, petrified, and, and want nothing to do with them. Uh, but are happen- you happen to be at a Southern Baptist church. Uh, and I know people on every single end of that spectrum. He reminded us that the, this SBC is not a traditional denomination that power flows from the top down, but rather it's a cooperation of churches. Mm-hmm. The good work that is done in the Southern Baptist Convention is the good work that's done at the local church level yeah. every single week. The work of evangelism, mm-hmm. missions, preaching God's word, taking care of, of of those in our midst that are oppressed and suffering. And so so I, I just appreciated that word that, that being involved in the in the convention is fine, but being involved in the local church is so much more important, and our denomination values that. Yeah, well, and I would add, too, I've been a Southern Baptist my whole adult life and had never gone to the convention, never even understood. Still, I'm not sure I understand everything that happens at the convention. <laughs> um, and, and so my, my general experience of the SBC is just as a church member. And right. so all of us stuff that happens at those higher levels, the average SBC church member is not aware of those things, is only aware of their local church's ability to do ministry in in their particular area. And my experience, and I mean, gosh, at this point, it's been over 20 years being in an SBC church has been overwhelmingly positive in terms of ability to impact our community. And then, you know, as you pointed out through foreign missions and the other um, cooperative efforts of the SBC, a lot of the other stuff just, you know, it, it's ups- it can be upsetting, yeah. uh, but it, it doesn't necessarily touch the day-to-day operations of any given SBC church. It's true. It's true. There's a lot that can be said there. But I think you said the, the most important stuff. One other, can I just say one more thing? Yeah. Uh, just a, a, a partnership that the village is so grateful for is the ERLC, yeah. the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, the work of, of Dr. Russell Moore. He's a friend of our church, a friend of the leadership here. And he has provided, I think, a lot of hope for younger Southern Baptists and a lot of uh, a vision that a lot of us want to get behind. And so really grateful for that. Yeah, for sure. Well, that was fun, guys. Kyle, this is the worst one we do. <laughs> you know, did we I, answer any one of them? I, lo- I don't feel, I don't know. I really love, let me tell you something. I love seeing you squirm. Um, <laughs> you guys are such, uh, working with Jen and JT is like working with Michael Jordan and uh, another Michael Jordan. Michelle Jordan. And so to see them uh, squirm a little bit is pretty awesome for me personally. Personally, um, listen. If there's anything that you heard us talk about on the show that you'd like to know more about, you may be able to find Ask more help. Kyle, <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna give you Kyle's cell phone yeah, number. Do that. Um, yeah. 
For more information, you can look into the show notes in the podcast description. We'd be honored for you to leave us a podcast review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast. You can find us online at trainingthechurch.com. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Knowing Faith. Um, We're going to be taking the month of August off, so we'll start releasing new episodes in September. The next season of Knowing Faith will include reflections on 1st and 2nd Samuel, working through the Doctrine of Revelation, the Davidic Covenant, the Incarnation, so much more. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for submitting these questions. We're so grateful that this has been a helpful resource for folks. We just encourage you uh, that if you get a chance to leave a review wherever you get podcasts, that's super helpful for us as we try to continue to create resources that can go further and further to empower people for biblical literacy and for theological engagement. So thank you for listening. See you next time. Grace and peace.